This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, March 3rd, 2021. I'm Caleb Brown. President Trump left President Joe Biden at least one gift when he left office, a timeline for a full departure of U.S. forces from Afghanistan. The question now, will Joe Biden accept the gift and take the opportunity to exit America's longest war, or will he blow it and end up owning the war and make himself culpable for even more lost blood and treasure? Cato's Doug Bandow and Will Ruger comment. Will, I want to start with you. What did we know from uh, Joe Biden versus Donald Trump when it comes to Afghanistan at this time in 2020? Well, I think the worry that a lot of us had uh, in the movement from Trump on Afghanistan to Biden is that it would be part of an elite primacist restoration uh, and that the Afghan policy would follow a, a broader restoration of the status quo anti-Trump when it came to the ending, the, the, the endless wars and the grand strategy approach that we had seen over the last 20 to 30 years. Uh, you know, and, and we had seen, I think, you know, all the problems associated with that, that, that contributed to not only the, the rise of Donald Trump as a candidate in 2015-16, but also in the progressive side to seeing people like Sanders and Warren and others talking about some of the issues uh, that have been problematic about our foreign policy and gaining traction. So you're seeing a broader array of people, both on the left and the right, that want to change in our foreign policy. They express that, as well as other issues, obviously, in support for Sanders and Trump in 2016 and again in 2020. Uh, But now you're seeing, I think, uh, what many people fear is that there would be a reversion to that primacist approach. And you see that in the staffing uh, that is that has come. I mean, there have been some good people, I think, that have been uh, picked by the administration, but people who really are kind of a back to the future approach, and that's troubling. Now we still don't know what's going to happen on Afghanistan, right? It's possible that the administration will decide uh, to continue with the withdrawal plan that's consistent with our agreement with the Taliban that was established uh, a year ago uh, in Doha. Uh, they could do that, uh, but a lot of signs are suggesting that they're going to seek an extension or uh, some ad- advocate an even more indefinite condition-based approach to Afghanistan, which I think means essentially uh, a truly forever war there. Uh, Doug Bandow, I can recall in 2009, President Barack Obama considering a surge in Afghanistan and his vice president, Joe Biden, the voice of reason at the time, saying, this is not a good idea. Well, that's right. Though, of course, uh, Biden did not argue for withdrawal at that point. I think the problem we have here is that virtually the entire Washington establishment believes we should stay in every one of these wars. And it's not just Afghanistan, of course. We should keep troops in Saudi Arabia or we in uh, Syria. We should keep troops in Iraq. So there's very strong pressure for that. We saw that with President Trump being unable or unwilling to bring U.S. forces home after four years under extraordinary pressure, even within his own administration. Biden ran against endless wars, but also talked about, well, we might have to have some people there for, you know, uh, counterterrorism, et cetera. And the argument that's being used now is we've made all these wonderful gains. We shouldn't bring the troops home until We've got an agreement between the Taliban and, you know, the Kabul government, you know, because otherwise everything will fall apart, et cetera. 
And it looks like he's uh, susceptible to that argument, though, as Will indicated. We don't know yet, but the pressures uh, do seem to be intense. So, uh, Will, uh, May 1st, as you note in your uh, New York Times article, is not that long away. Do we have any expectations or can we say with any confidence what is going to happen before then? Yeah, I mean, these decisions are going to have to be made soon. Uh, you know, and and that's what troubles me as we get closer and closer to that date. Now, there aren't a ton of troops in country. It's about 2,500 American troops in uniform. There are a lot of contractors, and then there are also coalition forces. Uh, but we need to be making these decisions uh, sooner rather than later. And that's what worries me as far as, uh, you know, a, a belief that there will be an extension now, a unilateral extension, I think, would be quite uh, uh, will quite ha- have quite terrible consequences because the Taliban, I don't think, will take this lying down. I think you'll see an increase, uh, an escalation of uh, violence, especially targeting American troops uh, and coalition forces, and uh, I think that will lead to unnecessary deaths uh, potentially on our side. Now, the interesting thing about the what's going to happen going forward is whether they can, if they do want to extend the deal, whether they'll try to find a path forward with the Taliban so that the Taliban would accept an extension. Now, that won't be cost-free, right? That would mean that there will have to be concessions made to the Taliban, because why else would they want to do that? Why would they extend, especially given that uh, if the Taliban are appear uh, to flinch uh, in terms of U.S. troops on the ground in Afghanistan, uh, that could lead to uh, them being outbid by other insurgents. It could cause trouble in their own ranks, and they know that, right? That's Their raison d'etre has been getting rid of what they consider to be foreign invaders on their lands. And so I think that it's going to be important that if the Biden administration does seek an extension for domestic political purposes or to look like they're carrying out a more responsible, quote-unquote, uh, uh, withdrawal, uh, it means that they're going to have to give these concessions. And what position do those concessions put the Kabul government in? Uh, and do they actually potentially make things things worse uh, for, for our partner in the country? Doug, you want to just jump in there? Yeah. One of the problems here is that the argument being made by the other side, for example, uh, former general uh, retired general Dunford uh, and others at the U.S. Institute for Peace that put out a big report, the study group that, of course, I mean, without who, who was who was surprised, advocated that the U.S. troops stay on, made the argument there's really no cost here. There aren't very many of them. Nobody's dying. But of course, all of that's predicated on the fact they were supposed to be going home. And so I think Will's point is very important. It is very unlikely the Taliban is going to stand by and allow this to happen unilaterally, in which case, what happens if Americans start dying? Then, of course, the administration is going to be in the position, well, are they going to run? Are they going to cut and run? Are they going to give in? Are they going to have appeasement? You can see the other side's going to put a lot of pressure on saying, kind of go back to the recent uh, the strike in uh, Syria, because we want to teach the Iranians they don't dare shoot missiles, or their proxies better not shoot missiles at us in you know, Iraq, that once you're in this, you know, the escalation is easy to keep going. And you can imagine people saying 2,500 is not nearly enough. If they're attacking us now, we have to protect the uh, Kabul government. Otherwise, they can't have negotiations. So I'm afraid the danger here is setting an escalatory cycle, which is going to put increasing pressure on the U.S. to put more troops in, which, of course, will cause the Taliban to raise the attacks even more. And once we're in that cycle, it's going to be very hard to get out. And we've already seen 
uh, people here in Washington promoting the idea that maybe we do need to increase forces there. And so I think Doug's right, and, and that's going to be a real problem. Uh, and, and, and one thing I wanted to kind of talk a little bit about is some of the research, uh, you know, behind war termination that I think is relevant to this issue. So Sarah Croco, uh, who I, I referenced in my op-ed that you, that you talked about, Caleb, she talks about how culpable leaders, you know, have a much greater difficulty in actually getting out of wars than leaders that aren't considered to be responsible for the war. And I think given that Biden's position in the past has seemed to be more restrained or or less hawkish on Afghanistan means that he's not, I don't think, someone who the public will feel is a culpable leader yet. And so if he withdraws based on the timeline that that uh, Trump's uh, Doha agreement laid out, then I think that, that it would be easier for him in terms of the d- domestic ramifications afterwards. So it, it wouldn't be as if he owns the, the war or the consequences of the withdrawal to the same extent as if he extends and continues the fight, then it makes it very difficult for him, based on what we know about how leaders react um, when they are considered culpable leaders, for him to ever get out. And so you could be thinking about 2024 being a contest in which you have Republicans criticizing Biden for continuing this endless war and flaking on Trump's withdrawal deal. And so, again, this will be Biden's war if he continues this, as opposed to Trump's withdrawal. And that's just that's a bad look for the president going into 2024. Now, again, stimulating Republican antibodies on this, just like we saw in uh, the early 1990s in response to Clinton's uh, escalation in Somalia, uh, or what happened throughout the 90s, where Republicans eventually led to George W. Bush talking about no new nation building, that wouldn't be a bad thing in terms of at least the fight within conservatism for what American foreign policy should look like. But again, uh, you know, we want good policy here for our country. Uh, and it's important, I think, that Biden withdraw. But again, the politics are such that, that he should have an incentive not to want to own this war and stimulate those Republican antibodies. What about uh, public opinion polling w- within the United States? I know that there are uh, a lot of, you know, the example I go to is is trade and uh, that Democrats were so uh, in favor of free trade during the Trump years, uh, quite possibly just as a response to Donald Trump being an, an avowed protectionist. What's the risk of not being able to build a, a broad public opinion in opposition to these adventure wars around the world uh, just, by, just by virtue of the fact that Donald Trump was in favor of them. And here's Joe Biden not feeling a whole lot of pressure to uh, make a move. Well, there are activists progressives do seem more serious about being anti-war this time than when Barack Obama took over. I mean, there were lots of anti-war protests under George W. Bush, and then Barack Obama came into office and almost all the progressives melted away. They didn't want to criticize Obama. We've seen fairly substantial progressive criticism of uh, you know, Biden on the uh, Syria strikes. And there's you look at you know, what we saw during the campaign, even in Afghanistan, pretty strong effort there. So I think we have a better shot this time that there are a lot of Republicans out there, some of them kind of Trumpers, some of them not, 
uh, that are tired of the endless wars. And this time, there's, I think, a greater chance you'll get criticism from progressives, especially if they're not happy on some of the domestic policy stuff, that they will be less inclined to give Biden the benefit of the doubt. So my hope is that to the extent he's getting criticism elsewhere, he might see this as an area to give something more to the progressives and get us out. Yeah, and in some of the polling that we've seen from the Charles Koch Institute and from Concerned Veterans for America, about 70% or about about three quarters of the American public, including military veterans and, and their military families, have been supportive or would be supportive of a withdrawal from, from Afghanistan. So I think that you know, foreign policy isn't usually the first issue that, that voters vote on. Um, I mean, I think if you're seeing lots of casualties, it, it rises in its importance. But generally speaking, uh, people don't go to the ballot box on foreign policy issues. However, there is space to withdraw politically because, again, if President Biden did withdraw, you could see that there would be very few people that would be unhappy enough for that to be the, a salient issue for them. This was a, a big talking point for Donald Trump in the campaign uh, during the Republican National Convention. I can recall Donald Trump Jr. going on about uh, forever wars and the need to get out of them, um, You know, leaving aside from the ability of Joe Biden to simply take that off the table as a uh, salient issue for uh, fans of Donald Trump. Why is this good policy simply for the United States? It's good policy because the United States does not need to have a semi-permanent or permanent troop presence on the ground to accomplish our goals in the region. You know, well, after 9-11, we had three ends that we needed uh, to secure uh, in order for this the war to be a success. One was we needed to punish the Taliban for its state support of al-Qaeda. Two, we needed to attrit or decimate al-Qaeda as an effective terrorist organization uh, with the intent and capability to harm the United States and its forces. And three, we needed to kill or capture Osama bin Laden. And we accomplished all three of those goals. In fact, we accomplished those relatively early. I mean, it's it's been uh, you know quite some time since the last of those goals was achieved, which was killing Osama bin Laden. And I think that the fact that we've accomplished those goals mean we actually won the war we needed to fight. The problem is, is that we, we put so many different... Um, you know, uh, goals out there and expanded the war aims that they would be impossible for us to win. Right? That's one of the reasons why this talk of a condition-based withdrawal is a fantasy, because the conditions that are laid out by the variety of figures here in Washington are so expansive and so difficult to realize in a place like Afghanistan that we it would basically be uh, a recipe for never leaving. And that's why the forever war, endless war talk is, is not a cheap talking point. I mean, it's a real reality here when people talk about, well, we should compare this to Germany after the Cold War or South Korea. Well, we're still there, right? It's been 80, you know, uh, 75 years, right? And so I think we really need to understand that those who are talking about a conditions-based withdrawal and an indefinite uh, troop presence are really talking about forever war. And unlike Germany or South Korea, uh, you know, you can't eat out in the local economy like you can in Germany and enjoy all the the wonderful, uh, you know, verst of uh, of Bavaria. Let's say um, people are shooting at you. Uh, there are IED attacks. You don't have freedom of movement. Uh, the fact is, is that this already is a a civil war in which the United States is on one side of this. And so, when people talk about how 
if we, uh, we withdraw, then that will initiate a civil war. This is crazy. There already is a war going on. This is not a condition like West Germany or South Korea. So these are entirely, uh, you know, problematic, uh, uh, you know, analogies. And and I think that instead, what we need to do is think about what we need to do going forward, which is make sure that we're keeping up our intelligence capabilities uh, and keeping up our focus on and willpower of hitting groups like Al Qaeda if they should emerge in, in Afghanistan. But again. Terrorist groups like that don't need Afghanistan to, to plot terror attacks uh, or to develop their capabilities. I mean, there's a global uh, environment in which those things can be done. A lot of the planning for 9-11 happened in developed world countries, including in Florida, where they were doing some of the flight training. So the fact is, is that, that uh, Afghanistan is not a place where we need to be nation building or creating a, a place that is more like America. In order for us to meet our goals, we simply need to make sure that that if there are targets there to hit, that we have the will to do it and the capabilities over the horizon to do so. And then also, I think we we have to you know think about the real costs of staying, not just the potential benefits. So all in all, it's good policy to leave. I think it's a demand for accountability on two aspects. One is bad arguments. I mean, as Will indicated, we, we hear the argument essentially that if we don't stay in Kabul, you know, that the Taliban or that the uh, Al Qaeda or ISIS will be fighting us in Kansas City. I mean, it's a ludicrous argument. The point is, there are plenty of ungoverned spaces or badly governed spaces like Yemen, where you know that was the most active uh, chapter. And then, of course, we got involved and we actually went after the people who hated al-Qaeda the most. But the other is that the, the utter failure after 20 years, that we are you know, 20 years into a 40-year civil war, the, uh, you know, the U.S. and the uh, you know, Kabul government don't even control Kabul. I mean, a friend of mine who was on the embassy staff said that, you know, this is a couple of years ago, they no longer sent you know, staff members to the airport by vehicle. They took a helicopter. Now, I was there twice 10 years ago on trips. We drove all over the city. I mean, if you're telling me that after 20 years of war, you don't even control your capital city, it tells you you have a very real problem. So the demand here has to be for accountability. We've had policymakers through Democratic and Republican administrations. At some point, someone has to assess, have we achieved our goals? What do we need to do in the future? And hold somebody accountable. And that, that requires, I think, us getting out. You know, otherwise, it's kicking the can down the road, hoping for failure to show up on somebody else's you know, watch, and Americans die. And that's not a very good reason to have Americans die. Doug Bandau is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. Will Ruger is a research fellow at Cato and was President Trump's nominee to be ambassador to Afghanistan. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast anywhere you please and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.